open up your Bibles to John chapter 9. Hopefully, we are going to finish this chapter this morning. We didn't get as far as I had planned last week, so this is lesson number 94 in your books continued. It's part B of part 2 of The Light Gives Sight. And this morning, we will be looking at John 9, verses 27 to 41. You know, the healing of the man born blind was one of those divine must works of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what he had said in chapter 9, verse 4? I must work the works of him that sent me. Did you ever think of yourself as being a must work of the Lord Jesus Christ? I got to thinking of that about that today. I am so glad that I am a must work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the healing of the blind man was not only a must work that gave this man who had been born blind his physical sight, but much more critically, much more importantly, that miracle also gave him, as we will see this morning, his spiritual sight. And at the same time, this miracle authenticated many of the truths that the Lord Jesus had been claiming about himself. You know, when John the Baptist was in prison, remember back when he had been put in prison? Now, in our Life of Christ study, he's already deceased. But when he was in prison for having spoken out against Herod's, Herod Antipas's adulterous relationship marriage with his brother's wife, John had been there in the dungeon um, for quite a while, and he got kind of um, depressed a little bit, I guess we could say, and he sort of started to doubt some things. And so he sent word through two of his disciples, John's disciples, to ask Jesus, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And in answer, do you remember the Lord's answer to his beloved forerunner, John the Baptist? The Lord Jesus told those two disciples to report back to John the things that they saw him, Jesus, do, and the things they heard him say. This is his answer. He said, go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. And the first thing he mentioned was the blind receive their sight. And then he said, And the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended or stumbled in me. That was his answer back in Matthew 11, verses 4 to 6. You see, the the miracles Jesus performed were those predicted in the Old Testament scriptures for the Jews to watch for in the true Messiah, including, and notice he said this one first, giving sight to the blind. That was a miracle which no Old Testament prophet had ever before performed. It's amazing. Go through the Old Testament. You'll see no other prophet of God had ever given sight to a man who had born blind. So it was a messianic credential. If you want to know who the true Messiah is, see if he can open the eyes of the blind. 
It was, for example, uh, said that when the Messiah would, would come, Isaiah 42, 7 says, when he comes, he will open the blind eyes, he will bring... That's the first thing listed there, that he would bring out prisoners from the prison. What prisoners? Real convicts? No, people who were in bondage to their sin and they were in darkness. And Isaiah also said that the true Messiah would bring out from those uh, prison those who sat in darkness, speaking, of course, of the Gentiles. So it was a real messianic um, proof. When Jesus opened not only the eyes of those who had been, who became blind, but here in this special miracle, the eyes of one who had been born blind, because that was even a more special miracle. Well, what I want to do before we get to where we left off is let's just really quickly reread the chapter up to where we got last time. And that would be through verse 26. And um, comment on it a little bit. So if some of you that weren't here last week might understand what we're talking about. And then we'll um, try to jump into our lesson today, which we'll be looking at the rest of the chapter. All right, let's begin. Remember back in 859, after Jesus had said before Abraham was, I am, claiming to be none other than Jehovah God, I am that I am, that offended the religious rulers very highly. So they took up stones to cast at him, but he hid himself and went out of the temple and went through the midst of them. That was really a miracle that he passed right by and they didn't see him even though they wanted to stone him to death and it said, and so passed by. And then we started chapter 9 with the words, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember, they had the, the, the uh, theology of that day was that if someone was born with a congenital handicap of some sort, that either the man had sinned in his mother's womb or he had sinned in some previous life because they believed in reincarnation, even though that was wrong theology, or they believed that he would commit some terrible sin in his yet future life and he was being punished for it ahead of time or what was the other choice that his parents had committed some preconceptual sin and the man was suffering or the woman who was uh, had a handicap was suffering for because of the parents sin so the disciples went along with the same kind of thinking and they asked Jesus who did sin this man or his parents and Jesus now remember we talked last week about the man the blind man sitting there outside of the temple probably heard the Lord's answer when the Lord said and this would have been music to his ears when Jesus said neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And then he went on to say, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And don't you know, that's exactly what that man wanted to hear. Because if there was one thing he wanted more than anything, it was light. Well, when he had thus spoken, he, Jesus, spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. Now, I don't know if I had told you this before, but the word Siloam shows up in the Old Testament as the word Shiloh. 
It was a pool of water. It was a, a, a pool of, of the living water from the Gihon Springs that was collected inside of the, the uh, walled city of Jerusalem. And the Jews believed that this pool of living water came, was a, a, God, a God sent divine gift for them. You see, they could be besieged by an enemy around the city and they would still have a continuous water supply because it came, the water from the Gihon Springs came through, Hezekiah had built a temple, the, t- the, the tunnel went under the wall and came into the city and was collected there in the pool of Siloam. So it was really living water. Didn't Jesus? Jesus say, if any man thirst, let him drink of me. And he said that he is the source of living water. The reason they named the pool Scent is because they felt like this water supply, this continuous water supply, was sent to them as a gift from God. So don't you see how it all ties in together? That Jesus is the source of living water and he was sent by God. So that's, that's why John told us what the word Siloam means. It's by interpretation sent. All right, so the man uh, was told to go to the pool and wash his eyes, and he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, so we, we talked about how the first thing he must have done after he received his sight was run home to his own neighborhood and uh, want to share the news with his parents and everybody else he had known all his life. And it tells us the neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that was blind said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Isn't that the blind man? Look at him running around and leaping and looking at people. It's amazing. And there was a little bit of a division because some said, this is he. Others said, it's like him, but we're not quite sure. And so he settled all the little discussions by saying, yes, it is I. I am he. Therefore said they unto him, how were thine eyes open? Verse 11, he answered and said, a man. Now notice this is his first um, his first description of the one who healed him, we learned that he learned his name was Jesus. A man that is, named, is called Jesus made clay. Doesn't say anything about the spit because it was against the Sabbath law to, to use spit on the eyes back in the, that day. So he said, he made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, where is he speaking of Jesus? And he said, I know not. Then what did they do? They brought him to the Pharisees, probably the Sanhedrin court, the ruling judicial body of Israel. <laughs> they brought him to, to them so that they could assess the situation. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind, and it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. John is telling us this is not going to be a very fair interrogation. I'm warning you up front because it was the Sabbath. And you know how the, the Pharisees get when it's the Sabbath day. They get really pretty nitpicky, don't they? But the main thing is they're out to get Jesus. They hate Jesus by this point in time. Alright, so verse 15 says, Then again, just like the neighbors had done, the Pharisees also asked him, and that word asked is given in the imperative tense, which means they continuously ask him. Over and over they ask him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, now notice how he's sort of trying to protect his benefactor already, because instead of saying anything about spit, and even saying anything about the fact that Jesus made clay, which was a no-no on the Sabbath, he merely said, he put clay upon mine eyes, and then he takes the responsibility for the rest of the breach of the Sabbath by saying, and I washed, 
and do see, nothing whatsoever is said about the Lord's command to him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam because, again, it was against the Sabbath to go and to wash your eyes on the Sabbath. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, now here we see a division among the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees say, this man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others of the Pharisees said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them, or a schism in the Greek, a heated debate. They, and after a while, they turned back to the blind man to see what he had to say about his benefactor. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? And what does he say this time? A man called Jesus? No. He's, he's growing spiritually in his enlightenment as to the person of Jesus Christ, because now he says he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, the parents, saying, Is this your son who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? And his parents, who are greatly intimidated by this situation, answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now seeth we know not, or who hath opened his eyes we know not. And we know they're lying there. We discussed that last week. If you didn't, weren't here, get the tape or the CD or read the book. We know that they're lying because what, what we're told next in verse 22. But notice how they, they turn the situation very selfishly back on their son by saying, He is of age, and to be of age to witness in a court, you had to be at least 30. So this man is at least 30 years of age. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. Very selfish parents there, right? Okay, these words, now we know why they spoke the way they did. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he, Jesus, was the Christ, meaning the, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, if anyone confessed that, what was to happen to him or her? They were to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, that's why his parents said he is of age, ask him. Then again called they, and notice how many times the word again is in this account. Again, the Pharisees called the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. We talked how you cannot praise God and call his son a sinner, can you? But they're saying, give God the praise. We, we learned men, and the we is emphatic in the Greek, we know that Jesus is a sinner. And we pointed out how ironic it was that when Jesus, back in chapter 8, verse 46, had asked them to convince him of any sin he had ever committed, what happened? They couldn't, they couldn't say it. They couldn't name a thing that he had done other than break their little silly, ridiculous, man-made rules about the Sabbath. But now all of a sudden they know that he's a sinner. So the blind man answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. And wasn't that a great testimony? Sometimes, you know, we think we have to know so much theology and so much about the Lord and all, all these different doctrines, when really the, the, the simple truth of the fact is that to witness to somebody, all we really have to say is what? What this blind man said. One thing I do know for sure, I was blind, 
and now I see. And I can say that because I know one time I was blind spiritually. I was in darkness for 22 and a half years. And one day I could see. The day I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, my spiritual eyes were open. And I have progressively seen those eyes getting more and more wider and wider open, just like this blind man did. We're going to see his eyes get even more opened to the person of Jesus Christ. Well, that is where we left off, and that was just a really quick review of things. But um, let's now read, go ahead and read... um, read our lesson, or at least the first part of our lesson for today. And for that, I want to read verses 26 to 34. I'll stop at 34 for now. It says uh, in verse 26, Then said they to him, and there's that word what? Again. And the word said is in the imperfect tense, which means over and over again. I would be getting very tired of this question. And the man gets a little frustrated, but notice how they again ask him, What did he to thee? How open he thine eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? And then what did they do? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. And now here's the man's sermon. I call this the blind man's sermon. This is the longest part of this discourse. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know, notice how many times they had used we, he slaps it right back at them. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? So, logically thinking through everything, he says, If this man man were not of God, he could do nothing. So you see his progress here? He had said Jesus was a man called Jesus, and he had said he was a prophet, and now he's saying he is of God or from God. And how do they answer him? Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. All right, up to the point of verse 27, I would have to admit that this blind man had been extremely patient with all the questioning that was going on, how he was being interrogated, you know, instead of being uh, lifted up on their shoulders and marched through town. And don't you think that somebody, at least somewhere along the line, should have been really happy for him? I know, I think I shared this with you last week, that if it had been me, I would have said, what in the world is the matter with you people? Why in the world can't you be excited and joyful for me? I, I mean, I felt the same way after I got saved, <laughs> accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, that I couldn't share. The first ones I went home to, to share it with was my parents, right? Naturally, you would think that. So I ran home to my parents and told them, and they looked at me like, you know, throw, talk about throwing a wet blanket on somebody. What has happened to her? Oh, yeah. You know, there was a Jesus movement back in those days. Kind of the hippie was back in the 70s, and they thought, well, I had just jumped on the Jesus bandwagon, and this too would pass. 
but it never did and it never will praise the lord but uh they're just a bunch of wet blankets they're not getting happy for the guy now why would they not be happy for this blind man just like they weren't happy for the poor man who laid there 38 years at the pool of bethesda and all they were was mad at him because he picked up his bed pal why weren't they happy for these people You know why? Because they were false shepherds who did not really care for the sheep that God had entrusted to them. They didn't care about the sheep at all. And we're going to see that when we come back from our Thanksgiving break and we move right into the Good Shepherd Sermon, which is so appropriate because here we have a sheep who knows the voice of his shepherd. Everything is just written so perfectly in the scripture, how it goes from one scene to another and how Jesus uses this one mirror to tie together all the truths about himself, that he is the source of living water, as he said in John chapter 7, that he is the light of the world, as he said in John chapter 8, and that he is the good shepherd and the true sheep know his voice in John chapter 10. He brings all those truths together in this one miracle. It's just also perfect. Anyway, they weren't happy because they were false shepherds. However, now in verse 27, this man finally, in response to their oft-repeated questions, he finally shows a little bit of frustration. And also, I would say that he shows some wisdom for not telling them anything else that his benefactor had done or said. You know, instead of getting getting really frazzled and dazzled, he might have he might have again in his testimony said something. Well, he spit and made clay. Aha! We caught you. But he didn't say that. He didn't say he told Jesus told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. He merely says very wisely, "I've already told you. Why do you why do you need me to tell it again?" He's accusing them of not listening, and in doing that. The man is in good company because isn't this exactly what Jesus had told them repeatedly in John chapter 8? Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. He had said you can't hear God's words. Why? Because you're not of God. So this man is in very good company. You know, the sad habit of unbelief is that it simply will not listen to truth or to logic or to facts. It has made up its mind. You know, don't bother me with the facts. It's made up its mind and it will not listen to anything contrary. Therefore, unbelief is always asking for signs, right? Isn't that what the Jews repeatedly do? They get more signs than you can imagine and they're still asking for more signs. Or unbelief will ask for different answers, other answers. They may not like the answers they hear from the scriptures, so they keep asking and they expect another answer. And that's really what these Jews are trying to get out of this guy, is a different answer. They've heard his answer already. They want him to give a different answer. They're really hoping to intimidate him so that he'll incriminate the Lord Jesus. But he'd already repeatedly told them the answers to their questions, so they had no excuse whatsoever for their repeated questioning. Now, in the witness's continued response of verse 27, he exhibits both boldness and, I think, a good sense of humor. I really like this guy. I told you he's way up there on my list of favorite Bible characters. Um, But I think he exhibits a sense of humor when he asks the Jews, in effect, oh, I know why you're asking me these questions over and over again. It is because you, too, 
want to be his disciples. Don't you hear the humor in that? And my goodness, for him to be that casual and sarcastic, you know that the man was not very intimidated by these guys. And he knew, he knew very well that they had no desire whatsoever to become the Lord's disciples. Did they? I mean, they thought they were far too uppity to become one of the Lord's disciples. They were all uneducated Galilean fishermen for the most part. One of them was even a former tax collector. One was a zealot. Now they were too high and uppity-uppity to become a disciple of Jesus. But I can't help but think that this blind man's testimony and this question... Uh, when he says, will ye also be his disciples? I can't help but think that that was his testimony and that question was used by God in the heart of someone listening to all this. Nicodemus. Don't you know that God used this question, will you also become his disciples in Nicodemus's heart? Just like God used the testimony of Stephen, when he was being martyred and stoned to death. God used that in the life of, uh, of another Pharisee, a Pharisee named Saul, who later became, of course, the Apostle Paul. Well, there's something very attractive to me about this one-time blind man, and that attractiveness grows stronger the more we hear him speak. <clears throat> I believe that his handicap of blindness had obviously developed a fiercely independent strain in his character. He had heard and he had learned a lot about people, you know, by listening without the distraction of seeing. As he sat for how many years, he must have sat outside the temple begging. And we talked about this last week. A lot of people just walk by somebody like him and not even really see him. A blind beggar. They just walk right by. They might drop a coin in his uh, can or whatever. But they don't really even treat him a lot of times like a person. But he is sitting there, and he's learning about life. And he's learning about people. And he is not at all distracted by what he sees. He judges, he's beginning to judge this world and people by what he hears. He's listening to the hearts of people. And I think that he had... He had already um, come to the conclusion that the religious rulers of Israel, for the most part, were a lot of hypocrites. So when we hear this man's statement here, we, we learn a couple things about him. Number one, we learn that the religious rulers did not intimidate him one single bit. He does not um, fear them to be so casual as he is and to be so obviously sarcastic with them. Remember now, this is the very first day of his sight. So this is the very first time he has ever seen their ecclesiastical garments. He has never seen their long beards before. He's never seen those phylacteries on their heads. He's never seen um, the, the, uh, the, their fancy robes and their prayer shawls and the bells that they would put on the bottom of their robes so that people would hear them coming and, and praise them as they pass by. All of this kind of stuff leaves him totally unimpressed. He never has judged somebody by their outward appearance. So all 
their religious paraphernalia means absolutely nothing to them. So he's not intimidated by them. Secondly, his statement, which is given as a question, will ye also be his disciples, tells us that he has been thinking about wanting to be a disciple of Jesus. Will ye also be his disciples? That word also tells us, hmm... He is advancing here in his understanding of Jesus. And this guy is a fast learner. He is quick. He has very quickly discovered that when it came to Jesus, he was going to have to take sides. Either loyalty to or denial of Jesus was being forced on him, wasn't it? He, he wasn't going to be able to ride the fence in this matter, like his parents had tried to do. And his gratitude and his understanding begin to dictate to him that this fellow, this man, this prophet named Jesus was one worthy of perhaps following as a disciple. We see his, 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 the wheels of his mind turning. Would you also be his disciple? Now, we can almost picture the Jews choking and sputtering at that last question about their interest in becoming disciples of Jesus. You know, they had kind of used the same sarcasm when the, when the temple guard had come back without Jesus. And what did they, what did they say to them? Um, are ye also deceived? And then remember when Nicodemus spoke up for Jesus and they said, uh, Art thou also of Galilee? So they had used that kind of sarcasm and now he's saying, Oh, I know why you're asking. You want to become one of his disciples. They're very indignant at the, the very mention of uh, these, they, these wise and learned men becoming disciples of a mere carpenter, you know, a nobody from Nazareth. So what do they do? Look at verse 28. What's their response? They're so mature. It says, therefore, they, they reviled the man. And the Greek word there means they railed at him. They were now verbally abusing him with words that are not recorded for us. I don't know if they got to cussing or what they did, but the words are not recorded, but they really verbally abused the guy. Actually, although the former blind beggar would not have known this at the time, this was a blessed honor for him to be reviled in this way by these, uh, this Sanhedrin court. Because this word, this word, this Greek word, reviled, is used in the New Testament of only two other categories of people. It is used of the Lord's apostles who were reviled, and it is used of the Lord himself. In 1 Peter 2.23, it says of the Lord Jesus, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When they reviled, abused him verbally, he didn't, he didn't you know, return the favor. So that was a great comp compliment to this man, that this word was used of him, the same word that was used of the apostles and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those are the only other times, other than when the apostle Paul reviled the high priest, not knowing he was the high priest. You know, I think, did he call him a whited sepulcher or something like that? And then he apologized right away because he did not know that man hadn't been behaving like a high priest, so he didn't know he was the high priest. So this blind man is in good company. 
And he was already, although he's not yet a Christian, he's already showing himself to be potentially good discipleship material. Now, of course, the Jews had been wanting to get the blind man to trip up in his testimony. That's why they keep on with this interrogation. They had wanted him to contradict something, that, you know, he would contradict himself. But now, it's, it's interesting that in their next response to him, it's actually they who wind up contradicting themselves. <laughs> and I'm going to show you that in a minute. But listen to what they say in their revilement of him in verse 28. He's, they say, Thou art his disciple. And you know, that's actually a compliment, isn't it? They, they meant it for an insult, but it was a great compliment to this guy. Thou art his disciple. It's interesting to me that they had been the ones, the Jews, who had spent a lot of time listening to Jesus, wanting to catch him saying something wrong. And they had spent a lot of time debating with Jesus. And, um, and they were already noting that this man was beginning to resemble him. He was beginning to resemble Jesus, which is really funny when you think about the fact that this man had only been with Jesus a total of probably just a few minutes. Jesus had made a mixture of spit and clay and put it on his eyes and told him to go wash. That didn't take very long. <laughs> and, uh, and he's never yet even seen Jesus because as soon as he was given that command, Jesus and him splitted ways, parted ways. Jesus went one way with his men and, and the man went over to the pool of Siloam. And yet these guys are already noticing that he's a lot like Jesus. Isn't that interesting? They said, thou art his disciple. Um, and then they go on and say, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this, and you notice in your Bibles that the word fellow is given in italics, which what does that mean, ladies? It's not in the original Greek, so the word they're saying, as for this, deceiver. They're speaking about Jesus very derogatorily. So really, they're not only reviling the blind man. Who else are they reviling? They're reviling the Lord Jesus Christ. They say, you know, we're Moses' disciples. We know God spoke to Moses, but as for this deceiver, we know not from whence he is. Notice how these guys were always bringing Abraham or Moses into their arguments. Uh, they, were, they said they were absolutely sure that God had spoken to Moses, but they weren't sure at all about this deceiver, this Jesus. Dr. Warren Wearsby wrote something I thought was interesting to share with you about the Pharisees. He said this. He said they were, quote, cautious men who would consider themselves conservatives when in reality they were preservatives. I like that. A true, he says, a true conservative takes the best of the past and uses it. But he is also aware of the new things that God is doing. A preservative, however, simply embalms the past and preserves it. A preservative is against change and resists the new things that God is doing. If the Pharisees really understood Moses, and I could add to that, if they were truly the spiritual sons of Abraham, they would have known who Jesus was and what he was doing. Isn't that interesting? 
I, I don't want to be a preservative. I don't want to be one of those who says, who's always going back to the past and, and, and preserving the past and saying, you know, well, we've always done it this way and we can't ever have any change. Some change is, is good. But anyway, I am a conservative. Maybe I'm a preservative conservative. I don't know. I know one thing. I'm not a liberal. <laughs> but as the Lord had told them back in John chapter 5, verses 45 to 47, the writings of Moses himself actually stood in judgment of them. Because if they had truly, as they said, believed the writings of Moses, if they had believed Moses, they would have believed Jesus because Moses wrote of Jesus. Did Moses write of Jesus? Absolutely. The first five books of the Bible written by Moses are full. They're all about Jesus. Everything in them is about Jesus. I mean, the, the, the promised seed of the woman right away in John chapter, I mean, um, Genesis chapter 3, uh, the animal that was slain to cover Adam and Eve after they sinned, that was a picture of, of the Lamb of God shedding his blood to cover our sins. Uh, the brazen serpent lifted up in the wilderness is a picture of him lifted up on the cross. The Noah's ark is a picture of, of the safety of Jesus from the from the storm of God's judgment and his wrath. Most, what about the Shekinah glory cloud and the the um, pillar of fire? That was all. That's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the whole the Passover story is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The death angel will pass over only those who who have the blood applied to the doorposts of their heart. And um, what else? Somebody the, the story of Abraham offering Isaac is another picture. And the ram caught in the thickets. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many promises about, the, you know, what tribe, the tribe, the line of, the tribe of Judah, the uh, Shiloh, and um, many, many promises in the first five books of Moses about Jesus. There's also the whole life of Joseph is such a beautiful picture of Jesus. And then there's the whole tabernacle and the sacrificial system. You know, everything in the, in the tabernacle was a picture of Jesus. Even the colors that they used for the materials and the veil and everything is a picture of Jesus. Every one of the sacrifices is a picture of Jesus. Did Moses write about Jesus? Absolutely. So if they truly believed Moses, they would have believed Jesus. So why did I say a minute ago that the Jews contradicted themselves here? Well, it's because they said of Jesus, notice in verse 29, verse 29, where they said, We know that God spake unto Moses as for this fellow. What did they say? We know not from whence he is. Now go back to um, John seven twenty-seven, just a few pages over, back. Here they're saying to this blind man, we don't know from whence Jesus is. Now, even though Jesus himself had told them over and over again that he came from where? His father who sent him. He came from heaven. He had told them that in the Bread of Life sermon. He had told them that in the, the Light of the World sermon. He has been telling that from the very beginning that he came from his father who sent him. Yet they say they do not know where he came from. However, back in 727, what did they say about Jesus? We know this man, speaking of Jesus, whence he is. We know this man whence he is. Now, don't you see a contradiction there? It's interesting to remember that they had then gone on to say, continue to look at verse 27, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. And now they admit to this blind man, 
we know not from whence Jesus is. You know, they said there that they did know from whence he is. Now they're saying they don't know from whence he is. And not only are they contradicting themselves, but they also are giving even more credence to Jesus' claim to be the Christ by admitting that since they don't know from whence he is, he meets their own stated criteria for being the Christ. Didn't they say, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is? And now they're saying, we don't know from whence he is. So logically, they're giving credence to him being the Christ. You know, these guys are doing the interrogating, but the funny thing is that they're the ones who are getting all agitated and all befuddled, and they're the ones who are doing a bunch of double talk here. And you find unbelief does that a lot? You find a lot of double talk out there in the world? Just listen real carefully. (laughs) Now, on the other hand, however, the light was really beginning to to break into full dawn in the blind man's heart because he next said something that showed he had come to the point of focusing more on the person of the Lord Jesus than on the miracle that Jesus had performed for him. And it's neat to find that it really was the Lord's enemies who assisted this man in his own logical conclusion. They are the ones who pressured him into making a quantum leap in logic by saying that they did not know from whence Jesus was. That was the clue that triggered something in his mind. And when he heard that, he takes this quantum leap in his logical thinking. 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 <laughs> I make up new words all the time. Now, it, So in his next response, <clears throat> which is found in verses 30 to 33, this is the little sermon of the blind man. We're going to read of his, number one, his statement of astonishment. Number two, his logical, and I add scriptural assessment, his, his assessment statement, And third, his assurance statement. So his astonishment, his assessment, and his assurance. First of all, his astonishment is found in verse 30 when he says, Why, herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. His sarcastic statement of surprise here is in regard to the unbelief of his interrogators. He was surprised that they could not figure out from whence came a man who could open a blind man's eyes. You know, really here, he's expressing wonder over two things. Number one, he's expressing the wonder of his own miracle of having had his eyes open. That was a marvelous thing for him. And number two, he's expressing the wonder at the unbelief of these Jewish authorities, how they could fail to perceive that such a miracle worker could have come from only one place. How could they say they didn't know where he came from when he had opened the eyes of a blind man? Obviously, where did he come from? God. He had come from God. He had come from heaven. So that's his astonishment. Now, his assessment of the situation is found in verse 31 when he says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. This is where the man's um, knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures is seen. His principle was here a very scriptural one, that God does not hear sinners. That was a great undeniable doctrine that all the Jews knew and they admitted. You know, God does not 
hear the prayers of sinners other than a sinner calling out for forgiveness and salvation, of course. But God does not hear the prayers of those who, who do not acknowledge their sin and who do not um, repent of their sin and continue to live in sin. Now, there are very, ma- very many Old Testament verses to support this truth. It was undeniable the Jews knew it. For example, if I uh, regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's one. Also, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous and many other scriptures I could give you as well but this beggar this beggar who could not even have read the scriptures in braille why because they didn't have braille back in those days there was no such thing but this beggar had obviously listened very well to the reading of scripture in the synagogue And now here we find that he was giving these experts of the law a lesson in practical theology. Sometimes you find the wisest theology coming from just very simple people who maybe have not gone to all the schools of higher learning and the the, um, seminaries, etc., but they have what you could call just practical theology. The Lord does not hear sinners. That's pretty practical, isn't it? It's pretty true because it lines up with what the scripture says other than for a sinner who, like the publican, said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, these Jews said that Jesus was a sinner, yet he was obviously used of God to open the eyes of a man born blind. See, the man doesn't understand yet that Jesus is God, but he knows that he was used of God to open his eyes. And that's a miracle that not even one of the Old Testament prophets had ever performed. So God obviously heard Jesus because he really performed a fantastic miracle. It wasn't just a restorative miracle. He didn't just restore the man's sight. It was really a creative miracle because he had to make something new or different in the in the man's internal vision center that would enable him to see so the more the beggar thought about this situation the more he was seeing clearly and it's just ironic that it's the pharisees who are forcing him to see more clearly isn't it i love that you know, sometimes so by the time his logic got him to verses 32 and 33 he now speaks out with assurance So his statement of assurance is, Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God. Notice how he's progressing in his knowledge of Jesus. It's not a man called uh, Jesus, not just a prophet. He's a man of God, from God. He could do nothing. Now don't you know that the man, as he listened to the reading or the teaching of scripture in the synagogues or wherever else he could get anybody to read the scripture to him. Don't you know, if you were in his sandals, wouldn't you, as somebody's reading to you the Old Testament, would you not have been listening very eagerly for some account of somebody somewhere along the line who had opened the eyes of a blind person? You know, okay, Moses opened the Red Sea, you know, and and all these other miracles, even raising the dead, as, uh, you know, Elisha.
and Elijah did, and, and some of the fantastic miracles. Lepers had been cleansed even. Miriam had been cleansed of leprosy, and Naaman, the Syrian general, had been cleansed of leprosy. And, and he's hoping that somewhere along the line he's going to hear about somebody opening the eyes of the blind. But you know what? There is no such account in, this, in the Old Testament scriptures. There is the record of angels blinding the eyes of lusting sodomites as they stand outside Lot's door. And there is an account um, that of Elisha blinding some Syrians' eyes, but absolutely nothing about anyone blind receiving their sight. Did you realize that? No one prior to the Lord Jesus had given sight to one who was, was blind. And then I got to thinking about the rest of the, the Bible, the New Testament. <laughs> Do you know when Jesus sent out his disciples two by two back in Matthew 10? And he gave them power to, you know, preach the gospel of the kingdom and to heal, do all these healings and even uh, exercise demons out of people. Do you know that he didn't give them the power to open the eyes of a blind man? I reread that and I said, that wasn't in there. And then when he sends out the 70 disciples, we'll be looking that, at that in Luke 10 in a, probably in January. He didn't give them the power to open the eyes of a blind man. Now Paul, I think it was Paul, maybe it was Peter. In Acts 13, one of them blinded a sorcerer named Elimas, but nobody else opens the eyes of the blind. Only Jesus Christ, at least as far as the recorded scripture is concerned. So it's obvious by the, the man's quick, quick fact about this. You know, right away he says, nobody, since the beginning of time, that he had searched the scriptures to find out if anybody had. He knows this. He knows nobody has. Uh, we know that he had audibly listened to the scripture. And it was so utterly obvious now to him, as he's thinking everything through, that Jesus, who had opened his eyes, had to be of God, from God. He was a righteous man, not a sinner, like the, the Jews were trying to convince him that Jesus was a sinner. Otherwise, he could do nothing. He had to be of God. He had to be a righteous man. He even says he has to be a worshiper of God. Well... This former blind man's common sense and his practical theology, which was based both on logic and on irrefutable scripture, was like salt in the wounds of his enemies. He had gone too far for their own comfort. And now the Jews are at the point where they had often gotten with who else? They're at the point with this blind man that they had oftentimes gotten with Jesus. They could not answer him back reasonably. They could not answer him back scripturally. So what did they do? <laughs> they resorted to anger and abuse. They resorted to their old trick of name-calling. You know, they already reviled him and cussed him out or whatever they did. And now they say in verse 34, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? You know what they're admitting there? That he had been born blind. Because they, they're thinking, you know, he did something in his mother's womb, etc., etc. So they're saying, you were altogether born. You're, you're a first-class sinner. So who are you to try to teach us? 
Again, they're so mature, aren't they? That's, you know, what pride that is. Who are you to teach us? We're the big mucky mucks, you know. We've, we've gone to all the right schools, the first rabbinical schools of Jerusalem. So who are you? That's arrogance, isn't it? Isn't that pride and arrogance? You know what else it is? Total willful blindness on their part. <clears throat> but interestingly, what they said about the blind man was essentially true. He was born in sin. But the irony of it is, so were they. Because every man and woman ever born since Adam and Eve is born in sin. Because we're all born with the Adamic sin nature. However, the irony of the situation is that they too, the Jews, had also been born in sin. But whereas they would die in their sins. Remember Jesus warned them twice in chapter 8 that they would die in their sins if they didn't believe him. So whereas they would die in their sins, we're going to see that before this chapter is over, the blind man would receive Christ as his Lord, and he would not die in his sins. You know, everyone is born in sin. But the important thing is to avoid dying in your sins, isn't it? That's the critical matter. Well, the Jews had miserably failed in every one of their little interrogation games to disprove the miracle or to intimidate this man into witnessing against Jesus. And he was now very sure that Jesus was indeed a man of God, a man even greater than the great prophets of God. And all the power of the Sanhedrin court could not shake him or get him to back down. He had only gone forward, hadn't he? He'd only moved forward. He had gone from saying that his benefactor was a man called Jesus to calling him a prophet, verse 17, to saying he was not a sinner as the Jewish authorities were claiming that he, um, th that he was, to saying that he was a man of God, a man God heard, a man who worshipped God, verse 31 to saying that he was a man from God verse 33 so he's advanced he's come a long way in a short time hasn't he don't you wish some of the people you're witnessing to would come to conclusions that quickly maybe you should persecute them <laughs> so the Jews interrogation had failed and now they ha they've come to the conclusion that they've got to get rid of this guy they've got to silence him permanently so what do they do they cast him out of the synagogue verse 34 they excommunicated him from the synagogue they cut him off from the social and the religious life of Israel by making him a spiritual leper so to speak to be avoided by everyone who did not want to also share in his fate no one would be able to employ this man no one would be able to um, buy his goods if he was a trader, you know, had something to sell. No one, his family would be forced to disown him. He could take no part in the religious services of the synagogue or in the worship services in the temple. Most people would not even speak to him. So, as I said, I think last week, the dread of excommunication for a Jew was something we can't really understand, but um, it, was, it was second only to their dread of death. And anyone caught helping someone who had been excommunicated was exposing himself or herself to the same fate. 
So it's a bad situation. And therefore, this former blind beggar, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but he became the first man to directly suffer for Christ's sake. I read that in the commentaries, and I thought, nah, that can't be true. And then I started looking and thinking, and sure enough, it's true. He's the first one to directly suffer. John the Baptist suffered. He had his head cut off, but it wasn't for Christ's sake. It was because he spoke out against Herod Antipas' marriage his adulterous marriage to his brother's wife. That's why he was thrown in prison. This blind man becomes the first one to directly suffer for Christ's sake. It's interesting because he's not yet a Christian. (laughs) Now we note that also that the man says nothing further by way of of crying out or, or begging to be reinstated. He doesn't back down. You know, once they say, well, you're de-synagogue, he doesn't say, no, wait a minute. I'm sorry, I'll say whatever you want me to say. Just please don't cast me out. I'm just now getting back in. I've been a social ca- outcast all my life, and I'm just now having the opportunity to get back into the swing of things. Or not back into, because he's never been. But uh, please don't cast me out. He doesn't. He doesn't beg for that, does he? He just obviously walks out. And he doesn't revile back as he's walking out and turn around and give some insulting last-minute words as he's leaving. leaving. Like, you know, he could have turned around and said, you brood of vipers, (laughs) or you whited sepulchers, you. He doesn't do that. So again, who is he already resembling? His his coming master, Jesus. This guy was made of pretty tough fiber. You see, there was still one all-encompassing plus in this day that he had just experienced. And that all-encompassing plus managed to swallow up every negative thing that had happened to him since. You know what that positive plus was, that all-encompassing plus was? He could see. He could now see. You know, if you've had something absolutely marvelous happen to you, it doesn't matter. You know, later on in that day, like I had a wonderful day the other day, this this green... This green electrical box got in my way while I was driving. I don't know where it came from and how it got there, but it just got in my way. And it was in Connie's driveway, of all things. <laughs> and I, I destroyed my husband's side of my husband's car. You know, <laughs> something like that can ruin your day. But if you've had a wonderful thing happen that morning, that's an all-consuming plus. Um, I don't know what it might have been. Maybe Connie told me she's pregnant again. She didn't, but let's say she had. Well, it wouldn't matter. You know, I'd just be floating all day long. Well, that's what happened with this man. No matter what happened to him, he could see for the first time in his life, and he wasn't going to let anything get him down. Also, he um, had met a person who he would never forget as long as he lived. And he probably would have loved to meet that person again, although he had no idea where to find him. And in addition to that, something the man didn't know about, but the Lord Jesus in his early Galilean ministry had given a beatitude promise that he would see through to its fulfillment in this man's life. Now, this man didn't know about this promise. It was given in the Sermon on the Mount, and he wasn't there. 
Remember, this was the first day he's ever met Jesus. But you know what that promise was? Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward. The healed blind man was cast out of the synagogue. That's the bad news. But the good news is that the Lord Jesus always keeps his promises. And the Lord Jesus always completes his work, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will what? Perform it. He will complete it. He always completes his works. We're not only must divine works for him, but we're going to be completed divine works. What he has begun, he will complete. One day we'll be glorified. All right, so he had begun a good work in this man, and he would see it through to its completion. The false shepherds of Israel may have cast the man out from the fold of Judaism, but the good shepherd was about to find his sheep and bring him into the fold of his church. Let's look real quickly at verses 35 to 38. It says, uh, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him... He said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He, the blind man, answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. You know, during the trial that was going on all day long, the Lord Jesus had stayed away, didn't he? Because he wanted this man to grow spiritually in his understanding of his person. And sometimes the best way to do that for us to grow in our understanding of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is through situations such as pressurized trials. Isn't that a shame? But I know it's true. I learn the most about the Lord when I'm in a trial. This man had needed to learn that it was not the miracle that had happened to him that was the all-important thing. It was secondary. What was the all-important issue? The, the person of his benefactor. It wasn't the miracle, it was the person. Um, that was the important issue. We're told that when the Lord heard that the born blind beggar had been cast out of the synagogue, he went to find him. Isn't he the good shepherd who always finds his sheep? It doesn't say sadly anything about the man's parents finding him. Too bad. You know, when someone was desynagogued, it was announced publicly. And you will notice, please, I won't have time to talk about this, but in verse 40, guess who went with this man when he was desynagogued? Who do you think? Look, and some of the Pharisees which were with him. He was followed by Pharisees, and I imagine they told everybody everywhere they went, he's been desynagogued, he's been excommunicated, and if his parents had been waiting for him, they didn't want to lose their seats in the synagogue, so they weren't there. They didn't find him. That's sad. Now, I don't know where the man went. I don't know where he would have gone. I doubt that on the income of a beggar, he could have uh, had his own home. Uh, he probably lived with his parents, but I, I don't think he went to his parents because they didn't want to risk being desynagogued. You know, you couldn't help someone or you'd share their same fate. I'd, I got to thinking, I wonder where he went. Maybe he went back to where he had first met Jesus, somewhere outside of the temple. Um, it would have been his first day to see the temple. He had never seen the temple before. And of all things, don't you think he would have wanted to go and see the magnificent temple he had heard about all his life? 
He'd felt it, but he'd never seen it. And now he wasn't even allowed to go into the temple to see it and to worship there. But you know what? He couldn't go to the temple, but the temple could come to him. (laughs) Maybe he went back to the pool of Siloam. I don't know. Maybe he did, where he had first received his sight. I don't know where he went because it doesn't say. But we do know that he probably greatly wanted to meet Jesus face to face, but he wouldn't seek him out. He would not seek Jesus out. Why? Because he would protect, again, his benefactor. If he started asking where he might find Jesus, who's he got following him? Some Pharisees. What do they want to do to Jesus? They want to get him. They hate him. And if Jesus was found talking to him, he could risk the danger of being desynagogued. Do you think Jesus feared that? Why do you think the Jews never did desynagogue him? Because he wouldn't have paid one bit of attention to them. He would have gone right into the temple anyway. It was his father's house. So they knew that. Anyway, um, so so uh, he couldn't find Jesus, but Jesus found him. You know, if there was one person in town besides this blind beggar who was not afraid of the Pharisees or their power, who was it? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he found the man, and believe me, he didn't have to go around searching. He knew right where the man was, and when he found him... It's interesting to think, as Jesus is approaching this man, the man wouldn't have known who he was because he had never seen his face. But the minute Jesus opened up his mouth and asked the question, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? The blind man would have recognized what? The voice of the good shepherd. I just, I, I wish I could have been there and just seen his eyes riveted on the eyes of the Lord. And he asks... Oh, by the way, let me tell you, I know I'm going to have to keep you over a little bit if you don't mind, but did you know that this was one of only five times when Jesus directly referred to himself as the Son of God? Now, his favorite title for himself was the Son of Man, right? But only five times. Now, he said he came from his Father over and over and over again, but directly he only called himself the Son of God five times. And this was a blessed privilege because... This was, this was the third time he had used this expression of himself, and it was to this former blind beggar. Now, in great respect and probably also with great anticipation as to the answer he was going to receive to his question, you know, when the blind man said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Don't you know he already is knowing who it is? But he has to ask anyways. He's, he's, he's a, a very ignorant about a lot of things. But what I like about this man is that he is so willing to be instructed, especially by this one before him. And, uh, and he's a quick learner. He's a very fast learner. So he asks the question, who is he, Lord? Notice he says, Lord, that I might believe on him. When standing before the Sanhedrin, that man had been as bold as a lion, hadn't he? He didn't fear those guys at all. But before Jesus, who he doesn't know, well, he does know it's his benefactor because of the voice, but he doesn't know exactly who he is yet. But although I think he suspects before him, he's very humble and he's very reverential. And Jesus went on to then reveal himself more fully, more precisely to this man than to anyone else other than the Samaritan woman. Remember her back in John chapter 4, the woman at the well? Probably with the, with the man's eyes absolutely riveted on his own, the Lord Jesus said to him, Thou hast both 
seen him. Remember, he hadn't seen him before. I think their eyes are making contact. And he says, thou hast both seen him and it is he that talketh with thee. You know, to the Samaritan woman who he had been talking with, when she brought up the subject of the Messiah or the Christ, he said to her, thou hast, thou hast uh, seen him. I mean, thou hast, it is he who is talking to thee. But to this blind man, he adds, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking to you. And in that instant, in that very instant when Jesus said that, don't you know the man's eyes were totally, fully opened as much as his physical eyes had been opened. And you know, remember the woman at the well? As soon as Jesus said the words, you know, it is he that is talking to you, what did she do in her excitement? She she left her water pot. She had gone out to Jacob's well to fetch water. She didn't need water anymore. She had living water. What did she need Jacob's water for? So she was so excited that she left her water pot and went back to witness to all the citizens in, of her village of Sychar. That's a good response to someone whose eyes are open. When you first get saved, don't you want to do that? I know I did. I ran home to my parents and wanted to tell them my good news. Just like he wanted to go home and tell his parents. Um, and But this man's response is different. He falls on his face before the Lord and worships him. Both are wonderful responses for a new Christian. Aren't we to worship Jesus and run out and tell the rest of the world? So anyway, so he says, Lord, I believe. And admitting that Jesus is the very Son of God put this man in excellent company because so far there have only been a few people who have admitted that he is the Son of God. Number one, we had John the Baptist who said, and I saw and bear witness that this is the Son of God. When he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove, he saw and bore witness. The second one you've probably forgotten about, but the second one to admit that Jesus was the Son of God was, anybody know? close he's the third Nathaniel I love Nathaniel because he was really a, he was a he was a real student of scripture and it didn't take much to convince him and he said in John 149 rabbi thou art the son of God and the king of Israel he was smart and then the third one was Peter who was speaking on behalf of the other disciples or apostles other than um, than Judas, of course, when he said, Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, so now this healed blind man had uh, joined a great group of witnesses, right? John the Baptist and the other apostles. Now, although this man could not go to the temple to worship, he could worship the temple of God himself when he came to him. And how how do I know that he fell down before Jesus and worshiped him? Because the Greek word is a word, when it says worship, it carries the idea of prostrating oneself in homage and in adoration. He worshiped Jesus as God. And another proof of Jesus' deity is that he accepted the worship, didn't he? He didn't say, as Peter and Barnabas and Paul and even holy angels had said, don't get up, get up, get up, don't worship me, I'm just a man. He didn't say that, did he? Because he truly is the Son of God. If he wasn't truly the Son of God and accepted this man's worship, he's no better than the Antichrist who will want everybody to fall down and worship him. He allowed this man to worship him because he is. 
the Son of God. Now, what do you think may have happened to this man in the months and the years ahead of him, in the rest of his life? What do you think might have happened to this former blind beggar? He could no longer beg, could he? Because he wasn't blind. And he couldn't get employment, at least in Israel, because he had been excommunicated. What then could he do? Well, do you know what I think? Same thing some of you are thinking. I think that he became exactly what he was starting to think about becoming back in verse 27. I think he became a disciple of Jesus Christ and that he was one of those unnamed additional 58 disciples who were added to the original 12 who were the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out in Luke chapter 10. Now we don't know who those extra 58 disciples were, but don't you know one of them had to have been this former blind man? Of course. And if I could name the man, I don't know what his name was, I'll find out in heaven. But if I could give him a name, I would agree with the name chosen by some of my favorite authors called Brock and Brody Tenay, T-H-O-E-N-E. And they have a lot of books they've written, and this couple has really done their homework. And There's a series of novels. I know you could get them over at the Christian bookstore. Um... On, on the miracles that Jesus performed and even Jesus's. They're, they're in book six. I just got it. I haven't even read it. But the first book in this series is called First Light. And it is a novel about this former blind man. Have any of you read it, Christy? It's excellent. It is, it's one of those you can't put it down. And it's so scriptural. They're like me. They like to, you know, speculate about some things. But they gave this man a name, and his name was Peniel in the book. Peniel, they get from Genesis 32:30. Peniel was the name of the place where Jacob, Jacob named the place where he had wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord, who was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He named that place where he wrestled with him Peniel, because Peniel means, I have seen the face of God. As you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to this former blind man was that he saw the face of God. All right, well, we don't have time to get into verses 39 to 41, so I hope you will do that on your own. It is gone. In closing, I want to use a prayer that was uh, written by a man named Jones of Nayland. I don't have a clue who he was, but this was his prayer. Bow with me. He said, Give us, Lord, the sight of this man who had been born blind from birth and deliver us from the blindness of his judges who had been learning all their lives and yet knew nothing. And if the world, Lord, should cast us out, let us be found of thee, the good shepherd whom the world crucified. For we pray in your name. Amen.